go ahead and open up your Bibles to Hebrews, the book of Hebrews. Uh, we're going to be celebrating Christmas in one of the best books of the Bible. Uh, my name is Jimmy. I'm one of the pastors here at the Oaks. Glad that you guys could be here today with us. One week away from Christmas, we are excited for that. Um, as you open to the book of Hebrews, I just want to begin our time together by asking a question. This is the question that we're going to consider for the entire time, and the question is this, what is Christmas all about? What is Christmas all about? Now, you might be thinking, this is about to be one of those like normal Christmas sermons that I hear every year. What is Christmas all about? It's about Jesus. Yes, all of that is true to an extent, but I think that we're going to learn some things from the book of Hebrews this morning that are particularly helpful. Um, but I've been thinking about this question quite a bit the last couple of months. What is Christmas all about? Because I am trying to teach little small human beings the answer to this question. My kids are six, four, and one. The one-year-old has not picked up on things yet, and so we're going to leave her out of this discussion. But my six-year-old, my four-year-old, uh, I'm trying to teach them what Christmas is all about. Uh, now, that's a great endeavor. Uh, why is it such a great endeavor? Well, we do this thing every year. We're like towards the end of the year. They don't have to go to school. That's fun. And then this tree just pops up in the living room, and there's lights on it. We put ornaments on it. We bake a lot more during the month of December. There's more treats. Uh, it seems like we go shopping for things, and then there's these magical boxes up here beneath the tree. Uh, and then, you know, it has some, their names on it, and then that sounds great. And then, of course, that first Christmas where they experience, oh my gosh, these are presents for me, and I get to open them. That's pretty fantastic. Um, and so my kids sort of know the, the deal at this point, but they don't know, like, the theological deal at this point. Do you understand what I'm saying? Um, that was a joke. You can laugh. It's okay. Um, so I've been trying over the last couple of months to try and explain to them, yes, Christmas is great, it's fun, it's our favorite time of the year, all of these things, the songs are fun, it's happy, uh, but there's also this deeper meaning. Uh, let me just tell you, it's not going well, uh, but uh, we are still powering through it. Um, we are trying to teach these things, but it's very hard to get like a five or six-year-old to think that Jesus, who is very real, but whom Judah has never seen in person, is better than this gift that is just right there. It's right under the Christmas tree. It has my name on it. It's real. It's, it's physical. It's material. And I'm going to get to play with it. But, but Judah, Judah, Jesus is, is better. Okay, I know he saved me from my sins. You know, Judah became a, a believer recently. We praise God for that. We're still learning. When we're learning, um, that's amazing. Thank you, Will. Yes. Um, so it, it's a process, but it's a process with all of us. I think sometimes we can maybe, we would never admit this, but yes, sometimes we're like, uh, Jesus is the reason for the season. Yes and amen. But like, I heard that my significant other is going to be getting me a really good present this year, so I'm actually pretty stoked about that. Very excited. Maybe I'm a little bit too excited for presents or the festivities and the fun or just like not having to go to work for a couple of weeks or something like that. Uh, we can look at all of the different ways that Christmas is meaningful and perhaps forget that Jesus is, of course, the reason for the season. Um, so we're trying to teach our kids that. Uh, and if I, if I gave all of you here a pop quiz right now, um, and I asked you what Christmas is all about, I think you would all get the right answer, right? 
I, yes, you guys don't sound too confident, but that's okay. I think if I gave a pop quiz and we had our clickers, I don't want to give the college students like PTSD from finals and stuff that just happened. But if you were to answer like A or B, Christmas is about presents or Jesus, I think we would all get it right. Um, you would know the answer probably we're at church. Um, and so you know the answer is probably more of a church answer. So you, I think we would get it all right. But and I think Judah and Olivia would get that right. I, that's the level at which we have convinced them of this theological reality. But what I'm trying to do with my kids is what I also want to try to do with us today. And that's to just go one step deeper when we think about the incarnation. When we think about Jesus being born as a baby, what is that about? What is Christmas about? And that's where I'm trying to take my kids, and that's where I'm going to take us today. And we're going to see that in Hebrews chapter 2. And ultimately, what I want us to see is that as we go one step deeper, as we look at the incarnation, we're going to see that Christmas points us to the inevitable reason why Jesus came to this earth. And that is to die upon a cross, a cross that you and I both deserve but not only that, but to defeat an enemy that is so sinister and so rebellious to God that it would take the very Son of God to defeat him. And of course, I think that we can be so blinded by the frills and the festivities that go on during this time of the year that we miss the tragedy of the Christmas story. You don't hear people saying that, right? The tragedy of the Christmas story. I was reflecting on that this week as I read through Hebrews chapter 2. The tragedy that this beautiful baby boy, right? Babies are a beautiful thing. Uh, for those of you who don't know Aaron Hickson, he used to work here at the Oaks. He moved to Southern. He moved to Louisville to go to Southern Seminary. Him, he and his wife just had a baby like yesterday or the day before last. Um, and he sent me this picture. Beautiful, beautiful little baby. The Coonies just had a baby this past week. Beautiful little Elise. We're excited for babies, right? But to think about Jesus coming to earth, we celebrate Jesus' birth at this time. But just for a moment, ask yourself, why did Jesus come to this earth? Why did he become a baby? John Piper said this, he said, The incarnation was God locking himself into death row. Those are shocking words, right? This is not the plot of the latest Hallmark Christmas movie that's on TV. This is not sort of the, the story of that Christmas hit single that you hear on the radio. But nevertheless, Christmas is ultimately about birth, and it's also about death. And that's what we see from Hebrews chapter 2. We ask this question, why did Jesus, the second person of the Trinity that we've talked about the last couple of weeks, why did the very Son of God put on flesh? Why did he dwell among us? We talked about the incarnation. We've talked about the hypostatic union, these big doctrinal and theological ideas but why did that happen? The all-important question here is answered in an all-important text here in Hebrews chapter 2. So turn with me to Hebrews 2, and let's look at the text with that question in mind. We'll begin reading in verse 14 and go through the end of the chapter. God's Word says this, "...since therefore the children share in flesh and blood..." He, Jesus himself, likewise partook of the same things, that through death he might destroy the one who has the power of death, that is, the devil, 
and to deliver all of those who through fear of death were subject to lifelong slavery. For surely it is not the angels that he helps, but he helps the offspring of Abraham. Therefore, he had to be made like his brothers in every respect, so that he might become a merciful and faithful high priest in the service of God, to make propitiation for the sins of the people. For because he himself has suffered when tempted, he is able to help those who are being tempted. The book of Hebrews is my all-time favorite book of the Bible, if you're allowed to say such a thing. But one interesting thing about this book of the Bible is that we aren't really sure who wrote it. Um, some people say Paul, some say Luke, maybe Barnabas, we're not, but we're not really sure. And throughout this book, what the author is trying to do is he's trying to convince you really of just one thing. This one message of the book of Hebrews. Jesus is better. Three words. Jesus is better. That's what Hebrews is all about. And what he does is he'll go through and he'll identify something that the audience would think is pretty great. Right? And so maybe for us today, he, the author of Hebrews is saying, Jesus is better than all of the wealth in the world. We're a very materialistic society. So you might find something that we think is really great and then say, Jesus is actually better than that. He's better than everything. That's what he's trying to get us to understand. So in these first couple chapters back in this day, uh, people thought angels were pretty great. Uh, that was a big deal back then. And so in the first two chapters, the author of Hebrews is trying to get us to see, hey, Jesus is even better than the angels. That's why we have that mention of angels here in verse 16. Much like I am trying to teach my kids that Christmas presents wrapped in a tree are not as good as Jesus, that Jesus is better than Christmas presents, that's what the author of Hebrews is doing as he picks out these things in his book. So these things carry a great deal of weight. And then at the end of this sort of argument, coming up at the end of Hebrews chapter 2, we come to our passage today. He's been trying to say, hey, Jesus is even better than the angels. And then he goes on to say, since therefore the children share in flesh and blood. And then he goes on through the rest of the passage. So honestly, this passage is just filled with some of the most stunningly beautiful theological truths and realities that we see in the whole Bible. This might be my bias for liking the book of Hebrews so much, but it is, this passage is amazing. But what I want to, us to do today, because I think you could preach a lot of sermons from this text, what I want us to do is I want us to come to this text and I want us to sort of put on like Christmas goggles and look at this passage through the lens of Christmas, through the lens of the incarnation. And so the one thing that I want you to see from this text today is this, is that Jesus suffered and died in order to pay the penalty of sin and offer the hope of a life lived in him. You see that? You thought alliteration was cool? How about a rhyming poetry main point? Amen? Jesus suffered and died in order to pay the penalty of sin and offer the hope of a life lived in him. So we're going to come to these just five simple verses, looking at it through a Christmas-colored lens to see three truths. So this is our main point, and I just want to give you three Christmas truths from Hebrews chapter 2, and we'll be finished. So truth number one is this. The birth of Jesus signals the death of the devil. The birth of Jesus signals the death of the devil. Let me ask, does anyone have nativity scenes at home? 
Uh, you're also taking notes so, f- f- so faithfully right now. No one's raising your hand. That's okay. Or you don't have nativity scenes. Some of you do. Great. Uh, we have like a bunch of them, just like the Kirklands have all the trees. We have all the nativity scenes. Um, and we have several that are very much like kid-centered. Do you know what little people are? If you're not, if you don't have kids, you might not. I had no idea what they were until like my kids were like five. So they're these little people. They're like plastic. And there's a nativity scene that we have. It's in our living room. Then we have another one that is sort of in our dining room, and we've got others around. Uh, but let me ask, does any of your nativity scenes, is, is, does any one of them have something strange in it? Maybe, like, does Jesus have a sword? Baby Jesus, does he have a sword in any nativity scene? I haven't seen one like that. I think that would be pretty cool if he did, but probably not very accurate. But Jesus did not come to earth with a suit of armor. He did not come to earth with a sword. He came in a manger. He came in swaddling clothes. Because Luke 2 tells us all of this. But let me just say, don't let the appearance of a baby in a manger detract us from understanding what Christ came to do here. You see, Jesus was coming to wage war against the devil. That's exactly what we learn in verse 14 of Hebrews chapter 2. Look at verse 14. Since therefore the children of the flesh, the children share in flesh and blood, he himself, Jesus, Likewise partook of the same things, so that through death he might destroy the one who has power over the death. That is the devil. You see, Jesus took on flesh. The incarnation happened so that Jesus could go toe-to-toe with the devil himself. Katargeo is the word here translated in verse 14, destroyed. So what did did Jesus come to do? He came to destroy, ESV says. This word can also mean to sort of nullify or, or to deprive one of his or her power. Essentially, Jesus, through his birth, Jesus came to earth and he was born, and through his birth and then through his death, he disarmed the devil. He took away the devil's power. He defanged this mighty serpent, rendering him unable to destroy any longer. You see, the devil had the power of death, but it was through Jesus' own death that Jesus stripped away that power from the devil. You see, the defeat of the devil here is prominent. That's good news for us. It's good news that the devil is defeated. You know, we're going to come back to that in just one second, but lest we sort of pass over this, I think that we can sometimes miss the beauty of the incarnation that we see here in verse 14. Yes, we see the death of the devil. That's fully on display in the second half of this verse. But we also see the birth of Jesus. Do you see that? Christmas in Hebrews chapter 2. Look again. Since therefore the children share in flesh and blood, he himself likewise partook of the same things. I don't think that we marvel at this enough. That sentence, that statement, we don't, we don't marvel at that. Jesus looked down on us and said, since we share in flesh and blood, since humanity, the ones that he created, when Jesus was there present in creation in Genesis 1, he gave us flesh and blood. And Jesus says, since they have the same things, I'm going to take those things on as well. I know in my own heart, I can sometimes sort of blow right past that truth. You see, the father knew that the only way to defeat the devil the only way to defeat the devil and also at the same time reconcile us back to himself was for Jesus to take on flesh. You see, Jesus could have just as easily said, uh, devil, you're dead, right? God is sovereign. This wouldn't be like, you know, some sort of massive fight. 
God could just cause Satan to just not exist at all at any moment. But we would still be guilty in our sins if Jesus just got rid of the devil, right? Because God is holy and just, he can't just snap his fingers and make everything go back the way that it was. No, something else had to happen. Jesus had to come in flesh to defeat the devil, but he also came in flesh in order to reconcile us back to himself. You see, Jesus shared in flesh and blood, just like us. He experienced humanity, just like we did, but he did so without ever sinning. We're going to go a little deeper into that in just a moment. But I want to just share with you a quote from John Calvin. I've got several John Calvin quotes in this because his, te- his commentary on this is just phenomenal. The best one that I read all week. But he, John Calvin writes this about verse 14. He says, The devil cannot prevail against us. For though the devil still lives and constantly attempts our ruin, all his power to hurt us is destroyed or restrained. It is a great consolation to know that we have to do with an enemy who cannot prevail against us. This is great consolation, just as Calvin says. And of course, this is the natural application that comes right up out of this text. That if Jesus has come in the flesh and defeated the devil, that's good news for us, isn't it? If you're in Christ here this morning, that's really good news for you. That's really good news for me that the devil is defeated through the birth and the death of Christ. You see, if you are in Christ, this great adversary, how does the scripture talk about the devil? It says he prowls around like a roaring lion, seeking those whom he may devour. This great foe, this great adversary, he's already been defeated. This great serpent has been defanged. He has no more venom to enact your death. He's powerless over the children of God. This is why Martin Luther, where's Hunter Rogers in here? Hunter Rogers, I'm quoting, a mighty fortress is our God, you're welcome. But it's his favorite hymn. This is why Martin Luther wrote the line, in a mighty fortress is our God. He wrote his rage, talking about the devil, his rage we can endure for lo, his doom is Sure. The the battle's already been won. His final doom and final end is still to come. But Jesus has defeated the devil once and for all. And this this is why it is such good news that we are not the hero of the story. Jesus is the hero of the story because it was Jesus who defeated the devil, not you. You're not on some cosmic quest to defy and defeat the devil. Jesus already did it. You are to live in the power of Christ through His Holy Spirit in obedience to Him. But you're not, the, you're not the hero of this story. Christ is. So we respond in reverence and awe of this great victory because, of course, we know that this victory over the devil was not won without great price. You see, our great rebellion required an even greater Savior. And that's exactly who Jesus is. Therefore, the devil no longer wields any power of death over the children of God because Jesus himself destroyed the one who has all that power. So let me just ask you, do you live your life like this? Do you live your life like the devil has no power over you? Do you live your life as if Christ has already defeated the greatest enemy that you could ever have? 
Even now, in this moment, do you feel a great sense of comfort? I hope you do. Because this text is meant to comfort us. Since therefore the children share in flesh and blood, Jesus partook of the same things that through death he might destroy the one who has the power of death. There's no more power of death for us. The death that we will experience one day, this physical death, is the only death we'll ever know. This is sort of the ultimate fulfillment of one of my favorite verses in Proverbs. Proverbs 11.10 says this, When it goes well with the righteous, the city rejoices. And when the wicked perish, there are shouts of gladness. Is there a shout of gladness in your heart that this ultimate foe has been vanquished once and for all? You see, the birth of Jesus, this Christmas time, right? There's no... Baby with a sword in the nativity scene. But the birth of Jesus nevertheless signals the death of the devil. But point number two, the birth of Jesus also signals the death of death. That's what we read in this text. The birth of Jesus signals the death of death. Right? The natural logic here is this. If Jesus destroyed the one who had the power of death, then Jesus kills death. That's the logical progression from this text. But guess what? That's not just the logical progression of the text. It's something that Jesus himself said in John chapter 11. In John chapter 11, Jesus himself says, I am the resurrection and the life. Whoever believes in me, though he die, yet he shall live. Right? Though he die physically, yet he will live spiritually. He says, And everyone who lives and believes in me shall never die. You see, the birth of Jesus signals the death of death. Look at verse 15 together, right? Jesus does not only free us from death itself, but he even frees us from the fear of death. You see that in verse 15? And to deliver all those who through fear of death were subject to lifelong slavery. You know, fear of death is a natural thing. It's a natural thing to be afraid of death, right? Have you ever, like, almost got into a car accident and you're like, ah, and you slam on the brakes, right? That's a natural fear. Caitlin will be quick to tell you that I am one of those people who get really nervous about potential death scenarios. I can come up with some crazy ones in my head. I want to be really protective of my kids. I'm kind of that dad. I'm okay with it, right? But I'm also generally afraid of heights, and so the potential death scenarios uh, go up exponentially whenever I'm anywhere where there's like the potential to fall. So I don't like when my kids, have you ever been to the Kenwood Mall? You know how like you're on the second floor and then the thing is just glass? I don't like that. You know, kids can break glass. Um, glass does break. And so death, okay? It's, it's just, it's how my brain works. And so I'm like, I'm going to be this honorable dad and I will do the walking next to the glass. I'll take that burden on myself and I will hold my children far away from the glass and be this hero. That's just kind of how I think. Uh, imagine my horror whenever a couple of years ago on the men's retreat, we went to Red River Gorge. Some of you were there with me walking. The natural bridge is this thing where God created a bridge, but with no handrails on it. And it's terrifying. And you can walk on top of it. Uh, now, it's pretty wide, but uh, it's a precipitous fall down, probably a couple hundred feet. And people die every year. There are statistics. Statistics are real. People die every year falling off of this cliff. 
And uh, of course, there were some people that went on this men's retreat with us who might have known that I was particularly scared of that, even for other people. You see, I'm so nice that I'm scared for you. You're not scared enough. I'll be scared for you as you walk near death. Um, But I didn't like it. Like there would be people just a few feet from a hundred foot drop. And I'm like, why are people doing this? This is insanity to me. And I walked squarely in the middle. I did not venture one foot this way or one foot that way. I kept my eyes down and I walked because once you get past the the bridge, there's actually a handrail for the rest of the trail and it's great. Um, Of course, then we came to this cliff later. It was a whole thing. But I don't like, right, that's a natural fear of death. Maybe a little unnatural for me, but it, it's natural for us to just have this general fear of death, like falling to our demise, okay? That's, that's okay. But what, what the author of Hebrews is talking about here, this, this fear of death is less so that kind of fear of death, a fear of falling or something like that, and more so it's about the fear of judgment, this anxious fear of, you know, deep down inside, I know that there's a God, and I know that maybe the Bible says this, or maybe if you're you know, a proponent of some other religion, that this holy text says this. But really, on that last day, how do you know that you will be made right with God? How do you know that for sure you will be able to overcome that fear of death? How do you know that you won't experience death eternally? Oh, that's such an important question for each and every one of us to ask ourselves. And again, Calvin wrote so beautifully about this passage, he said this, he says, God hath, de- hath so delivered us from the tyranny of the devil that we are rendered safe. And he hath so redeemed us from death that it is no longer to be dreaded. Do you see that? It's a great question for us to ask. How do I know for sure that I can overcome this fear of death, that I can overcome this spiritual death? And what the author of Hebrews says is, you can absolutely be sure You can absolutely live an anxiety-free life when it comes to the afterlife because Christ has made it happen. Because it's not based upon anything that you do or anything that I do. It's all based upon Christ. And so we have this great confidence in Christ. You see, if we are in Christ, there is no sense in fearing death. Death is not something to be feared. It's now something to be embraced And of course, none of us should seek to expedite this process. Death, the scriptures tell us, is all that stands between us and the presence of God. You see, apart from Christ, of course, we would have so much to fear. But because of the work of Christ on the cross, what Jesus says is true. That today we would be with him in paradise. The same thing that Jesus says to the thief on the cross is true for us today. That if you experience death today, whether tragic or otherwise, if you are in Christ, then the moment that you stop breathing, the moment where your consciousness fades into death is the millisecond that you wake up in the presence of God. You see, there is no reason to fear death. No, if you are in Christ, death is a doorway. It's not the end. That's good news for us this morning. That's good news on Christmas. That we no longer live in constant fear of death because Christ has defeated death once and for all. But the sad thing is that there are so many today who do live in fear of death because they do not know what to expect after death. 
Again, Calvin writes of the plight of those who live apart from Christ. If you're not in Christ, Calvin says this. He says, this passage expresses in a striking manner how miserable is the life of those who fear death, as they must feel it to be dreadful because they look on it apart from Christ. It's a natural thing to be completely anxious about death and the afterlife if you are not living in Christ. If you never trusted in Christ, repented of your sins, and turned to Christ, you will be anxious over death. And Calvin goes on to say in his commentary that that's a great sign that perhaps you are not a believer if you have a constant anxiety over death and the afterlife. You see, true misery is living life without Christ, and that's true for eternity, right? That's tr- true misery. That, that, it's done at that point. There, you'll experience eternity apart from God in hell. That's not good. But, but sometimes I think that maybe us Christians would think that Christianity is all about just the afterlife. But I think that maybe we forget, right, that Jesus not only helps us in the afterlife, but Jesus is helping you right now. Do you see that? That we don't have to live in fear of death for eternity, but you also don't have to live in fear of death right now. That if you're struggling with anxiety or fear of death, but you know yourself to be a Christian, then you don't have to fear. We see this manifested in a lot of ways, I think, in our culture, in our day-to-day. Never, it seems, has anxiety and depression, suicide and fear, and all of those things been so prominent in our culture, and sometimes in our own families and friend groups at work. We see this on display all the time. But of course, theologically, for for us Christians, it makes sense. Apart from Christ, man will do anything he can to distract himself from that sinking feeling in his stomach that he's made for something greater. He'll do anything he can to deny the fact that God has a claim on our lives and that we ought to serve him, that we ought to submit to him. But of course, God created us for His own purposes. And so it's not any surprise that whenever we reject God and go to the things of the world that we're just pretty miserable. And what happens is we become depressed and anxious. Maybe you go so far as to have suicidal thoughts. All of that happens because we're rejecting the one who made us to be in Him. And so we see that all throughout the Bible, but we also see it in our own lives. I wonder today, do you feel a sense of peace about death? When you think about death, do you feel a sense of peace? Of course, I don't want to die. I often think about how I'll die. I hope I don't die by falling off of a cliff, but I have, I have a sense of peace about it because I know that the moment that I die, I'll wake up in the presence of the Lord. I know that I'll never have to struggle with sin ever again. I'll never have that moment of thinking, I just wish I didn't do that. There will never be any more regret. There will never be any more tears. Because I'll be with God. Do you feel that sense of peace that arises from knowing Christ? You don't have to fear the unknown because ultimately it is not unknown. If you're not a Christian, let me tell you that the fear that you have in your heart, maybe even right now, is not something to be ignored. If you're here this week before Christmas and you fear death, I would just encourage you, come see myself or one of the other pastors at the back 
of the room after this gathering, we'd love to talk to you. I'd love to tell you about how the only thing that you have to do, you don't have to work for your salvation. You have to repent, turn from your sins, put your faith and trust in Christ, and follow him. That's what it means to be a Christian. It's so simple, but it requires everything of you. But today you can become a believer. You can experience peace today. Brothers and sisters, those of you who claim the name of Christ, I wonder, do you fear death? I don't think that if you are sitting here and you maybe question your salvation, that that just means you're not saved. I'm not saying that. But what I'm saying is if you fear death, take a look at this passage and let the Scripture counsel you. You don't have to fear death. You can live in the peace of God. But what about other fears? You see, if God in Christ has defeated death, which is our greatest fear, then why do we find ourselves fearful over smaller things? If death is the biggest fear that we have, then why are we scared to lose our job? Why are we scared that God won't provide for our rent next month? Why are we scared for this, that, or the other? There's no reason to fear. Because if God has addressed our greatest fear, won't he care for you in all of your other fears? Because we serve a good God, a gentle and kind God. Well, the birth of Jesus first signals the death of the devil. Second, the death of death. And now our final point, we see that the birth of Jesus signals the death of sin. The birth of Jesus signals the death of sin. We see that in verses 17 and 18. Look with me in verse 17. The author, again, points us to the incarnation, right? Look in verse 17. Therefore, he had to be made like his brothers in every respect so that he might become a merciful and faithful high priest. Jesus took on flesh and blood. Jesus walked among us. Now, I, already, I know I've already highlighted the incarnation, this sort of doctrine that Jesus took on flesh, but guess what? The author of Hebrews brings it up in two parts in like the span of five verses, so I'm going to bring it up again too. Because, again, this Christmas season, we just don't marvel at this enough. You see, every other religion teaches that as imperfect beings, we must climb this metaphorical mountain to reach God. Whether through pilgrimages, good works, or sacrifices, every other religion teaches that we must go to God. But in Christianity, and only in Christianity, do we see the amazing reality that God descends to us. That God takes the initiative. That God makes a way. While we were still sinners, Christ died for us. While we were in deep in iniquity, God took the initiative. God made a way. But lest we forget the reason that Jesus came and took on flesh, here again from John Calvin one last time, he writes this. He says, here his infinite love toward us appears, but its overflowing appears in this, that he put on our nature, that he might thus make himself capable of dying. For as God, he could not undergo death. What Calvin is saying here is just honestly the whole point of this sermon, that Jesus took on flesh so that he could die. Do you see that? You see, Jesus could not die as a spiritual being. He is eternal. You cannot kill God. Regardless of what Frederick Nietzsche says, God is very much alive and will always be alive. 
So how does Jesus die for sin if he can't die? He becomes like you and me because we do die. He puts on corruptible flesh, flesh that can age and die. You see, Jesus needed a physical body so that his physical body could be bruised and broken for us. But the birth of Jesus did not only result in the death of the devil and the death of death, it also resulted in the death of sin. You see, when Jesus became a baby in that manger, he began a life just like mine and yours. He, he grew up. He had growing pains. He started crying whenever he was teething. He skinned his knee when he was out playing with his friends. He was tempted to sin, but unlike us, he never sinned. Right? He had to eat. He enjoyed life. Jesus had fun. Like Jesus would quantifiably say, today was more fun than yesterday. I, I had fun today. Jesus wept like us. He cried when sad things happened. He was just like us, except for the fact that he never sinned. And that's important. And that's important because it is for that reason that, that, that Jesus never sinned, that he is able to become a faithful and merciful high priest, that he could lay down his life for us and make propitiation for our sins, make payment for our sins, atone for our sins. You see, Jesus did not take on flesh just so that he could understand us more. He didn't just want to commiserate with us. Of course, he does understand us even more now, but Jesus ultimately takes on flesh so that he could offer himself as a perfect spotless sacrifice for your sins and mine and to offer us hope as we live for him. This is why Connor read Matthew 1, 18 through 25 earlier, because Matthew writes this. He says, you shall call his name Jesus, for he will save his people from their sins. That's what the incarnation is all about. And even as Jesus defeated sin on the cross, he confronted the temptations that you and I deal with every day. And now Jesus stands as an advocate to help weary sinners like you and I. Let me ask you, is that how you view Jesus? Look at verse 18. Because he himself has suffered when tempted. Because he was like you and I. He suffered when tempted. He took on flesh like us. He was tempted just like us, but never sinned. And because he himself has suffered when tempted, he is able to help those who are being tempted. I know I can fall into the temptation of seeing Jesus as a harsh judge rather than a kind Savior. But the Bible teaches us that the heart of Jesus, the heart of Christ, is for his children. If you're in Christ, the heart of Jesus is for you. He wants you to succeed. He wants you to do well. He wants you to experience joy and fullness of joy in him. But let me tell you something else. He also knows that you're going to mess up. He knows your past. The horrific things that you don't tell anyone about, he knows about that. But he knows about your future too, the things that you're going to do this week. He already knows right now how you're going to fail on Monday and Tuesday and Wednesday. How you might make a fool of yourself on Thursday or Friday. He already knows that and loves you. And is merciful to you and stands there wanting to help you when you're tempted. Do you see that? 
He knows how difficult it is to be tempted and to not sin because he himself was tempted and yet without sin. And now he stands as an advocate for you, a helper for you. You see, the birth of Jesus signals the death of sin. But let me tell you, listen up. That death might be a little bit slower than we'd like, wouldn't it? That death of sin in our own hearts might be a little bit slower than we'd like. But even as we see progressive sanctification in our own hearts and in our own lives and in in the lives and hearts of our brothers and sisters in Christ, it points us to a day when sin will breathe its final breath and sin will be no more. That day is coming where you will never sin again if you are in Christ. You will never have to flip open to Psalm 51 and Pray to God along with verse 10, create in me a clean heart, O God, because your heart will be clean forever. See, the birth of Jesus signals the death of the devil. It signals the death of death, and it signals the death of sin. What we learn from Hebrews chapter 2 is we put on our Christmas-colored glasses. We learn that all of the details in the birth narrative of Christ that we know so well All these details in some way point us to the cross. They point us to an empty tomb because, you see, the birth of Christ points us to the cross of Christ. The birth, the teleological purpose of the birth is the cross. Jesus didn't come to earth just to hang out with us. He came to die for us. Christmas is ultimately about the crucifixion. See, the baby in the swaddling clothes points us to a man of sorrows on the cross. Even the small details of this Christmas story point us to Jesus on the cross. The gifts that the wise men give to Jesus point us to the gift of salvation that Jesus would one day give to us. The wise men proclaim when they see Jesus, they proclaim that they were looking for the King of the Jews. They're in Matthew, but what do we read at the end of Matthew in chapter 27? That there's a sign posted above the head of Jesus on the cross that read, King of the Jews. The wise men were looking for the King of the Jews, and we see him on the cross. The angel who appeared to Joseph in Matthew chapter 1, who said, Fear not. Joseph is considering his, his fiance is pregnant. This angel says, fear not. And that declaration to not fear reminds us of when an angel would come to Mary and Mary Magdalene as they ran to an empty tomb and found this tomb empty and it said, fear not. You see, the swaddling clothes that Jesus is wrapped in in this manger remind us and point us to the burial clothes that he would be wrapped in as a man. And the wooden manger that we see Jesus laid in reminds us of a wooden cross. Everything about Christmas is about the crucifixion. See, the purpose of Christmas is the cross. And in that still and silent night of Jesus' birth, the journey to Calvary began. And that is what Christmas is all about. Let's pray.